You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tara Fromm. I'm Kevin Crow, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast. I'll always remember the sunny summer day in Ann Arbor between sophomore and junior year. The college campus had mostly cleared out except for those of us diehards who chose never to return home. I had just spent a grueling hour of cardio and weights at the rec center and chose to spend a few minutes contemplating life sprawled out on the expansive, unused, multi-purpose field out front. As is wont to happen in Ann Arbor, a disheveled gentleman soon approached me and asked if I could spare a few dollars, but I didn't have any cash on me. Feeling a renewed sense of vigor and gratitude, I set off for the pantry across the street and used my credit card to buy a few sandwiches and drinks. I spent the next 30 minutes beside the homeless man, sitting on the field, mostly not talking and eating our sandwiches. And then we parted ways. Years later, as a physician paid to help people, I would think back on that day and wonder where my generosity, my humility, had escaped to. Eventually, I would burn out in medicine and become rather self-centered as I concentrated on accumulating enough, enough money, that is. Yet today, far past the stage of worrying about my net worth, I often ponder a whole different sort of accounting. What is enough when you have enough cash? What does generosity, kindness, and compassion truly look like in our lives? How do we give of our time, our money, our goodness? How do we truly walk a moment in someone else's shoes? When they falter, how do we give a step or a few yards? How do we give a mile? Tara Fromm and her husband retired early two and a half years ago at the age of 36. She was a director at United Airlines and her husband was a litigator in big law. They had been saving aggressively without a real goal for many years until her husband happened upon an article about financial independence. Two years ago, she became the first board chair in the United States of an organization called Give a Mile. Kevin Crow launched Give a Mile in 2014. It is a charity which enables people to visit an out-of-reach loved one who is receiving end-of-life or critical care. The company provides flights and transportation to help get them to their destinations. Tara and Kevin, welcome to Earn and Invest. Kevin, I want to start with you. Tell us about Ryan Westerman and describe his last few hours on Earth. Yeah, yeah. Ryan was an incredible friend almost like a brother to me. And, um, you know, 
we are both, when we, we, we met, we were both in the same stage of life. We were, you know, in our mid thirties and raising our families and our careers were going really well. We both had young boys and, um, unfortunately Ryan got diagnosed with brain cancer and the last year of his life, uh, he asked me to be beside him and, and to go on that journey. And it was an incredible journey. And so in the last few hours of his life, I honored my friend. It was a heartbreaking honor. I was beside him in, in the hospice. Uh, his wife was curled up beside him in bed and his four-year-old son had, uh, hold of my hand. And he said, Kev, what's wrong with my dad? And I said, um, your dad's dying. And, uh, do you want to give him a last hug? And I picked up his son and put him in bed. And he gave his dad this incredible hug and he fell asleep in bed with his dad and, and Ryan passed away a few hours later. Uh, and it was an incredible honor and heartbreaking moment to be there that changed my life. Kevin, I almost feel like it was fated that Ryan Westerman would come into your life. You had heard his name a few times before you <laughs> met the man in person. Is yeah, that correct? I agree with you. We are totally fated. So when I was in university, I started dating this woman uh, and she had told me about this heartbreak uh, breakup she had just had uh, from high school. She was first year university student. Uh, told me a lot about her ex-boyfriend, whose name was Ryan Westerman, but I never met him. We lived in different cities, um, never met him. Uh, and then I went away from university and a friend of mine was hitchhiking across Canada, uh, got dropped off of my house. And uh, he said, oh, I got this incredible ride. You would love this guy. You know, the last two hours, we just had this incredible conversation. That was Ryan Westerman uh, and never met him. So you fl flash forward, you know, about a decade from there. And I, I work at a technology company. And it's fast growing. And, and we hired our first HR manager it was right around Christmas and went in to introduce myself. And, and you know, as Christmas was said, oh, what are you doing for Christmas? And she said, oh, I'm going home. She mentioned the town she was from. I said, oh, I know some people from there. And she said, like, who? I mentioned this woman I used to date. Her eyes got really big. And she's my husband's Ryan Westerman. <laughs> so not only is his wife working at the same company, uh, they end up li living just down the road from us. And, um, I said, of course, you know, I got to meet your husband and, and right away we became instant friends. So absolutely. It felt like fate. Kara, we heard Kevin talk about his experiences with end of life and his friend, Ryan, you also have had some experiences with hospice personally, haven't you? Yes, I have. My father passed away about four and a half years ago and he was on hospice care at the end of his life. Um, and it was, it was really amazing care for him, uh, some extra, extra attention at the end of his life. And I was able to be there when he passed away as well. Kevin, help me understand. People take a lot of things out of the death of friends and family. People have these amazing experiences with hospice. Yours is the first time where someone walked out of this experience and thought, travel miles. Now, I don't want to go deeply into give a mile at the moment, yeah. but but how did this epiphany happen where this experience made you think of travel miles? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the journey of time with Ryan and, and just the value of time, uh, especially through quote that kind of end of life process. Um, There's a few things that really stuck out for me. One is, you know, as Ryan was in hospice and, and deteriorating and, and um, being, you know, heavily medicated because of the pain he was in, the hospice doctor said to um, Ryan's wife, Tash and I, you know, do you want me to cut back the meds and, and you can have conversations with Ryan? And we are just in this incredible spot where we both said, you know, we don't need to do that. We've said everything we need to say. 
Um, you know, Ryan was a very courageous person, very transparent through the whole process, uh, shared all his thoughts around it. And so just being in this incredible spot where you just feel that there's closure um, and that you've, you've said everything that needs to be said. The other part of it was, you know, Ryan was the guy that was like, why wait for my funeral? Like, I'm going to have a party now, bring everybody in and let's celebrate life. And, you know, he's the guy, kind of guy that had friends from kindergarten and from, you know, university. And so we brought all those people together and had this incredible party to celebrate his life. The town I live on, I live in Calgary, Alberta. Only one in four people are born here, uh, including myself, including Ryan, including his wife, right? People come to this, this city. And so when I was in hospice, we just saw so many people, you know, on the phone saying, Hey, got to say goodbye to daddy understands that you can't make it here or people on Skype or any of those things. So it just started playing that seed of that. There's this power of visit that helped us with the grieving and mourning process. And there's a whole bunch of people that aren't able to do that. Tara, let's talk about this idea of travel and dying patients. What were you doing for a living before you retired? And had you ever thought about the connection between that and end of life and what travel could mean to people? Yeah, so I was working at United Airlines for about 10 years, and I mostly worked in loyalty and marketing and worked a lot with specifically loyalty points and miles and partnerships and credit card points and miles and partnerships. The idea didn't really hit me until one of my friends approached me shortly after I left United with the idea of, of Give a Mile, and it all kind of clicked. But at that moment, it brought together for me all my knowledge that I had gained about loyalty points and miles, and then also this incredible end-of-life experience I had had with my, with my dad. And getting there was the last thing on my mind, because one of my company benefits was actually that for something like end-of-life uh, or funerals you get paid flights working for an airline. There was a lot of other things on my mind. It was an extremely difficult time. And as um, I was contemplating this organization, Give a Mile, I was thinking and kind of putting myself in the shoes of people who had all of this difficulty of losing a loved one, but add on to that, that they can't even afford a plane ticket to get there and be with that person. And I was fortunate that that wasn't my, my circumstance, but I could very easily empathize and think about what that would be like. And it just seemed like a pretty simple thing to do for people to say, you have a lot on your plate. You have a lot to be concerned about a lot of emotions that you need to deal with. Let us take one thing off of your mind. Um, and that can be the plane ticket. And working with loyalty programs, one thing that you you learn is that a lot of these miles go unused. A lot of these miles, people just accumulate a few thousand because they're not frequent travelers, or they accumulate so many miles and want to keep accumulating those miles and banking those miles <laughs> that they don't actually use those miles for trips. And so I also thought this was such a clever idea to utilize those miles that often go unused. And also, I think um, it's clever to, to ask people to give miles versus cash, because almost all charities are asking for cash, whereas it might be easier for somebody to part with their, their airline or their credit card points or, or miles. And so I don't, I don't think I had actually contemplated this idea prior, but the moment that I heard about Give a Mile, it really all clicked for me. And I thought it was a super efficient way to help people at such a meaningful time in their lives. And 
something that could could just provide that last comfort for somebody in their last moments. But also the other thing, if if anybody's had an experience um, losing a loved one that you know anybody involved in those last days, months of somebody passing away, it leaves a lasting impression on the people who live on. And I know losing my dad, you know, I had been so career focused. That was that was just my main focus for probably 15 plus years, climbing that corporate ladder, getting the promotions, um, just working so hard and sitting with my dad when he was in his last days, that just all fell away and it just couldn't have mattered less. And I had a lot of epiphanies in that time and afterward made quite a few changes in, in my life just because it really put into focus the things that, that matter. And just as much as I love that this organization gives some comfort to those people who are, who are dying. And I don't know, I don't know exactly what that looks like for them. I think a lot about what it must be like for the people on hospice care to get, to get to have their loved ones holding their hand and be by their side. I don't know exactly what that's like, but I do know what a transformative experience it was for me you know, the person who was there by my dad's side and living on and the changes, the positive changes that it it inspired me to make in my own life. Kevin, I'm interested by both of your stories, right? Because Tara is talking about being by her father's side. You were talking about being by Ryan's side. You also were people who were working on your careers, young people thinking about building wealth, those kind of things. Talk about how your perspective changed. I mean, does career and money make you happy? And how did these experiences change the way you thought about that? You do a lot of soul searching, right? And I think for me, one of the powerful things was Ryan and I were basically in the same spot in life, right? So, you know, you're really seeing yourself through Ryan's eyes. And, you know, at the time his son was four and, you know, my son was about eight and, um, before he got sick, he had a really successful career that was taking off. And, you know, my career was on a good trajectory, but you realize the importance of your priorities, where you're going to put your energy, right. And, and your legacy and your impact on people. And I do feel that, you know, it reinforced some parts of wealth for me that I need to take care of my family. And I want to make sure my family's provided for and that they can survive if if something happens to me, you know, because I, I know the stress that put on Ryan and, and the thoughts he had around that and, you know, just the worry he had about his family. But I also, you know, I remember this incredible experience where we had this really strong circle of support around Ryan, right? And I, I remember when Ryan got the, the, the news that, look, we're going to stop treatment. There's nothing else we can do. You should uh, be headed towards hospice. And I was like, what? well, what, what is it that you want to do? We'll do anything, right? He was a huge golfer. We'll take you to your favorite golf course. We'll go to Disney World. We'll go to Disneyland, all those types of things. And, and he said to me, he goes, Kev, I, I don't care about any of that right now. I just want time with my, my son and my wife and my friends and, and to see the power of that. And I remember when he was in, in hospice and you know, we were watching Jungle Book and his, his son was there and he had his son in bed with him. He had this massive smile on just watching his son's joy seeing that movie. And I was like, Oh yeah, you know, this is it. This is, this is the power of life. It's all these little things. It's not going to, you know, the Super Bowl, and it's not going here or there. It's these beautiful magical moments. And, and so that I need to make sure that one I'm present for them 
that I'm giving my energy to those moments and understanding how those moments are going to unfold for me. Um, And balancing that with the ability, obviously, economically provide in the right way for my family. I know another insight he gave to me, you know, being Canadian, I called him and and said, uh, I'm taping my son's hockey stick and getting to go to practice. And and he said, Kev, I just want you to remember, I'm never going to see my son's practices. I'm never going to see his games. You have to get to every practice and game you can get to. And, and I did, I, I made sure I put all those efforts in to get to my son's practices and games and, and how valuable those, those moments and memories are. And, and so to me, that was just a, it was a real epiphany uh, through Ryan's experience. Para, you retired at the age of 36. You similarly must have decided at some point that corporate America or making money wasn't going to be as fulfilling as possibly doing other things in life. Tell me about finding financial independence. How did you find it and how did you decide to retire so early? Yeah, so my my husband and I are kind of natural savers. So we had been saving and investing for a lot of years but without without a real goal and my husband had he was he was in big law and just working brutal hours, brutal cultures and he knew that that was really not what he wanted to do with his life, but it was hard to walk away from the paycheck. Uh, whereas I was very, very happy with my career at United and didn't have any plans to to leave. And my husband happened to run across this article in the New York Times about this crazy guy, Mr. Money Mustache, who retired, I think, at age 30. And something clicked with my husband. And he just realized that we had been saving a lot of money. We'd been investing intelligently. Thank you to my business school professor who taught me about um, index fund investing with with Vanguard, because that's exactly what we were doing, which is a pretty popular strategy in the financial independence community. And so my husband just started absorbing all these financial independence blogs and books and tracking our net worth like crazy. And I just kind of let him have it. In my head, I was like, hey, he's having a hard time with his career. And right now, maybe he'll take a little break. This seems to be something that that's kind of getting him through <laughs> this tough period. I'll just be supportive of him. But I pretty much dismissed the idea because it seemed crazy to me. And then I decided to read A Simple Path to Wealth by Jill Collins because my, my husband had just raved about the book and I'm a big reader. And I read that book and it just really clicked for me. And I understood this isn't a crazy idea. This, this all makes sense that why would we all work until an arbitrary age of 65 when some people are individual income, some people make an hourly wage and some people make hundreds of thousands of dollars. Why do we all have the same target of 65 to retire? And so I started thinking more deeply about it. I started reading more of, of the financial independence literature. At the same time, my dad was was getting was really sick, and there was a lot of reflection going on at that time too about what was important in life. And we were my husband and I were also thinking that we wanted to start a, a family, and I really wanted to be there and be at home with my my child at my ch- child or children. They were young all of those things were kind of going through my head. And then at the same time, it was about that same time that COVID, we were starting to hear news about COVID in China. And then about a month later, it was hitting the US and working for an airline. You can imagine that demand just basically tanked almost overnight. 
And um, in those situations, most airlines offer buyout packages because they would rather do that than have have layoffs to the extent possible. And so there, there, were, there were these terrific buyout packages with United with flight benefits and pay for months and healthcare for months. And so it was just this kind of permission or forcing mechanism for me to say, this is the right time for me to take this buyout. It was kind of similar with my husband's job. It wasn't as formal of a buyout, but they were also hit hard by COVID and worked something out with him uh, so he could leave leave at a similar time. And so I, I'm so happy that both of us were able to be uh, we had several months before my son was born to be taking care of our health and our mental well-being and our physical health. And um, that when my son was born, we could both be present. Kevin, I want to play with this idea of enough. We hold, heard Tara talk about this idea of financial independence and then getting mm. by out through work. How do you know what enough money is so that we can start concentrating on these other things? Because you mentioned there's a dichotomy, right? You have to economically Mm -hmm. take care of your family. On the other hand, you also want to be present. And it sounds like you want to give of yourself to others. How Mm -hmm. do you define enough when it comes to money? Yeah, I think one of the important things is, and we don't do a lot of is, is really explore our relationship with money, right? Like, you know, what does money mean to me? How does it show up? What are the stories I tell around money? Um, I grew up in a very working class family. My dad was an auto worker. The plants were closing down. Um, And I realized I had a lot of stories around survival, right? Like just like, you know, the world's against you, right? You've got to go and fight for your survival and find a way to make it. And, you know, I work in technology. and, And so as I was, you know, becoming more successful in technology, I asked myself, you know, the, the Ryan situation, I asked myself, why did I have this anxiety around money, you know, and what did that mean? And, and to me, I realized it was these stories uh, that were told to me or, you know, that I, I absorbed around, you know, from the my background and growing up and, you know, not feeling that we had enough. And we always felt like we were working class headed towards poverty. Um, and then I took a look around and said, if I had told that kid that they had this money, right? And they were making this living. What were their thoughts? And my thoughts would be, you know what? You should be happy. You should be comfortable. You should not be waking up in the morning feeling like you don't have enough. And so just kind of blowing up those stories and kind of rewriting that narrative was really important. And then the other part of it to me was like, I think, you know, intentionally designing your life. Um, You know, I've said there's some key design principles for me. One is, you know, do something you love that puts enough money in the bank that you're, you're feel secure, do something you love that keeps you, you know, healthy and and physically fit. And then do something you love that you give back to your community without the thought of getting anything in return. And the last one is invest in family and friends and really deliberately designing around those things and understanding balance between those, right? Like, Hey, you know what, that one pillar, I'm putting way too much energy into my career and my advancement. And you know, thinking about money versus my opportunity to give back to community or my opportunity to invest in friends and family. And so really exploring that and having some tough conversations with myself. And I do, I remember one morning, and this was, you know, probably about a year after Ryan died, I just woke up and I said, I literally said to myself, I have enough, right? Like if I had ever been told that I have this amount of earning on a, a annual basis, if I had money and in a bank account that I have enough. And it's not about survival now. It's about living, you know? 
Tara, I feel like we're better in this community at figuring out what enough money looks like. But as Kevin was talking about, there's also this idea of giving to your community and to society. How do you define what giving enough is? And do you ever struggle with that? I started my my career right after college. Um, I did journalism, but then I worked for a nonprofit organization and then throughout, I've volunteered and been on boards even when I was I was working. And so uh, volunteering and um, being part of these nonprofit organizations has always been something that's been part of my life. But it's really been something I've shoehorned into a super, super busy life to this point. It's interesting now having a family and having a child because I I really value the time that I spend raising him and making sure that I'm raising him with good values and to be somebody that's going to be contributing to the world. And so in some ways I think about, you know, taking the time to raise our children as giving back. And I don't know that I really thought about it that way until I I did have, have kids myself. You know, I do a lot, a lot of volunteering with, with give a mile. Um, it's interesting to think about it as what is enough uh, giving back because especially with this organization, we're very scrappy. It's almost all volunteer powered. So there's always something more that you could be doing, especially uh, as we're, we're in our early stages in the United States, just getting off of the ground. And I do think that that crosses my mind a lot of, uh, well, I can do more, so I should do more. Uh, but I think you can even take that to the extreme to um, to where you're giving so much back to an organization or to your job, whatever it might be that you're not taking care of yourself. So it, again, it really is about this this balance in life of of those things that are that are important to you. But for me, um, volunteering, it will always be a component of of how I spend my time. I know that much. Kevin, the saying is give till it hurts, right? And we're talking usually economically when we talk about that, but I'm also thinking about of your time and of your emotions. Mm-hmm. Can you give too much, even to a good cause? Yeah, I think a hundred percent. And I think especially for give a mile, when we have to say, no, we can't give somebody a flight. The first thing they say to us is, well, who do I call next? And I'm like, I don't know. We're the only organization I know in this space that are providing flights at end of life. And, and so it becomes a, a, a huge pressure to execute for those families. And it's not like they can come back or you can go back to them in six months and say, I have a flight for you now, right? So absolutely, uh, you have to find the right balance and you have to find boundaries to it. I think the important thing for us is that, you know, we set flight targets and numbers that we're aiming for and, you know, we do our best to get those, but they allow you to kind of say, you know, hey, I'm around my target. We've, we've done this much. And you also have to, have to have perspective. You know, one of my friends said, like, as of this morning, I think we've given 923 flights away. Um, and my friend said, Kev, if you did that once, that would have been an incredible gift. Think about it. You've done that 923 times. And absolutely, it, it's an honor and, and an amazing um, journey that Give a Mile is. But I, I also have to remind people for those 923 families that we've helped and we've served, there's been a lot of families we've had to say no to. Um, and you just have to keep those things in balance. The fact that you know I can only help so many people, the fact that if we weren't here, there wouldn't be 923 families that were helped. But on the other hand, there might be another you know 1,500 families we've let down. Um, But this is the journey of leaning into this work. (laughs) 
We are talking to Tara Fromm and Kevin Crow from Give a Mile, and we are talking about what is enough after you have your finances taken care of. We are going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later... We'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later... You have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner, and now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Tara Fromm, who with her husband retired early two and a half years ago at the age of 36, and Kevin Crow, who launched Give a Mile in 2014. Kevin, let's start with the basics. What Mm -hmm. exactly does Give a Mile do? 
Yeah, we provide flights for people to fly to be with their loved one who's at end of life. And we do that by people donating their unused travel miles, right? So you give a thousand United miles and I give a thousand United miles and we get mothers, fathers, sisters, sons, daughters on that plane to be with their loved one for that final visit, hold a hand, be there for a final conversation. We do that by people donating their travel miles and that's a 100% donation model, right? So all the miles you donate, we make sure they go to flights. You can also go on the website and donate to specific flights, right? So that you know who you're helping, you know the impact you're creating, right? We want to connect you to the impact. We are about 95% volunteer driven. Uh, we do have some administrative and bookkeeping help. Uh, we operate both in the US and Canada. Uh, and we've done about, of those 923, we've done about I think about 160 have been international. So flying someone to the U.S. or Canada or flying some from the U.S. or Canada to their loved one. And it's been an incredible work. Tara, tell us how you first got involved with Give a Mile. So I, I had a friend that was on the board of Give a Mile that I had worked with um, at United and told me about the mission. And I it just immediately clicked for me. This idea of asking people for their primarily unused points and miles to provide these flights that were I just knew were going to be life-changing for people. Kevin, let's go over the numbers. I want to hear specifics. Give a Mile has been operating since 2014. How many mm-hmm. flights, how many miles, how many dollars worth of flights have you helped people get so that they could see their loved ones? Yeah, we've done over 923 flights of this morning and hopefully more going out the door using over 35 million donated miles. Uh, like I said, of those 923, I think about 160 have been international in nature. Um, and it's been an in- incredible, incredible experience. From a dollar point of view, one thing I want to talk about as well is about 10 to 12% of our flights every year require money. Now, why do they require money is, is maybe we're flying somebody from a, a rural community and There's just not a major airline that operates from there. Uh, Maybe there's not seats that uh, are open from a points program. And sometimes, especially when we look at international, it just doesn't make sense from a value proposition to use points uh, versus money. A lot of our flights are very last minute, right? We've literally had people you know, call us or uh, file out, file in an application for that morning going, I need to get on a plane like in the next few hours. We try to be as responsive as possible. Um, Usually we can get that person on a plane the next day. So, you know, we want to scale this. Um, My crazy audacious goal is to do a billion miles through this program. Uh, There's no reason we couldn't do this in any other country. Uh, Totally fits. And a billion miles would probably be about 40 to 50,000 flights. You know, we love for people to lean in and help us scale up there. The, The need is there. We receive, you know, sometimes 10 to 14 applications a day uh, that we were trying to respond to. Tara, the amazing thing about Give a Mile is actually the individual stories. Do any of the stories stick out to you? Tell us about a Give a Mile recipient and what it meant to them. There, there was one just this past month that was, was really tugging at me. It was two brothers in their early 20s um, and their dad was passing away of heart failure and they were just so, so young. And their dad had taught them to hunt and fish and very outdoorsy, super close with him. And they just didn't have the means to get there. And we got them on a flight so that they could be, be with their dad at the end of life. And I, 
I just, I would love to follow up with them maybe six months, a year from now, but I can just imagine being that, that kind of formative age in your early twenties, losing a parent and having that difference of being able to be there at the end with somebody that they, they love so much that had shaped their life so much. I, I just can imagine it's, it's going to stick with them for the rest of their lives and really make them better people for the rest of their, their lives. Kevin, are there any stories that really stand out for you that really signify what Give a Mile does? Yeah, there's an incredible amount. I can tell you stories for hours. Um, but, you know, I'll tell you one of the stories I, I think that really solidified the Give a Mile mission for me, and, and this was in the early days. You know, I had a, a social worker reach out to me and say, Kev, we need a flight for a woman. Uh, I think she was in her forties. She's, you know, has terminal cancer. We've stopped treatment. She's originally from the Philippines. Um, and she wants to go back to her family, her parents and explain the situation, right. And have a last visit. She's actively selling her furniture right now. Can you get a flight for him? Hmm. Um, we were able to get donors rallied and, and um, she lived in the same city as me and she had actually sold her computer. I couldn't email her a ticket. So I physically delivered it to her. And, when I took it over there, she just gave me this incredible hug and just held on to me for what it seemed like minutes. And um, she just explained how important this was to her. Um, the fact that, you know, she w- needed to go back to the Philippines and explain to her parents, they, they just weren't understanding the situation and, and how severe it was, but also get time with all her, you know, sisters and brothers and, and nieces and nephews and that final visit. And she said, I'm not, I'm not just going to Manila. I got to take a train up into the mountains and it's going to be a very hard journey, but I'm going to find the strength to do it. And so, you know, she was able to do that and had this incredible visit. And, you know, the social worker called me a a few weeks later and said, you know, she had made the visit, seen her family and had passed away. And she goes, Kev, would you like to go to the funeral with me? And and I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't normally do that. Um, but just because we had such a, a deep conversation, I was like, yeah, I want to go. And, and, so I went to the the funeral and I arrived a little bit early and, and, you know, she's Filipino. I was the only white person in the funeral mm-hmm. home. And so somebody came up to me and said, excuse me, are you at the right funeral? And I said, yes. And I explained who I was, that, you know, I represent the organization that gave a flight and you just saw the, the smiles and the eyes light up and just the beaming of love. And they're like, you have to come meet the whole family. And so had this incredible moment with the family and, and just their gratitude and joy. And she had two daughters um, and just how much it meant to them. And, and then went back and sat through the funeral service and they had Skyped in her family and her parents from, you know, in the Philippines. And they didn't know I was there, but they had said, you know, just how much it meant to have her back and to have that visit and, you know, closure and what it meant to all the cousins and everything. And then somebody said, the person that gave the flights here, right? <laughs> and they just turned around. You could just feel the love in the room. It was just like an incredible moment where, you know, it just hits you. You're like, yes, we are. We need to do this. We're on the right track. We need to do a lot more of this. The world needs this. And never, you never have those moments where the sky opens up and you get hit with a beam of light and says, this is what you <laughs> shall do. But it was as close as you can get to it. And um, I just knew from there on that the the mission of Give a Mile was extremely important. and and just to me, one of the big things is to scale this and to get it to more people. Kara, talk about the logistics. I mean, do the airlines help you with this? Is this like a common thing, donate miles? And then on the other side, once the miles are donated, does Give a Mile help people set up their flights or transportation post-flight? Like what is the role that Give a Mile plays besides helping get these miles for people? 
Yeah, so we have terrific partnerships with both Air Canada and United Airlines, where we can run campaigns and we have a give a mile account and we can book from those accounts. Uh, we would love to get partnerships with other airlines because the the method now, if somebody donates um, miles from another airline, is they need to personally book from their account, which is not ideal from a logistics standpoint. Um, but that's that's the primary way that the airlines help us, um, Air Canada and United, with the with the campaigns. Uh, in terms of booking, it's all volunteers that that book these flights. There's a review committee. You know, we say that we'll respond. I believe in 48 hours, but it's it's usually much more immediate immediate than that. It's usually within hours. Some of these are some of these flights are really time sensitive, where um, somebody might need to leave that day often within the week. And so we have a, a team of flight schedulers that, that books those flights, optimize those for the best value of the, of the points and, and miles. But there's a lot of considerations. You know, a lot of these folks are needing wheelchairs or, you know, might need, might not be in the best health and might need a longer connection time. And so there's a lot to think about when, when booking these flights, in addition to wanting to be efficient with the points and miles also to, to accommodate, you know, the, the people that we're flying and make sure that it's a successful journey for them. Kevin, talk about the long-term goals for Give a Mile. You mentioned this idea of a billion miles, um, but what else is kind of on the radar? How do you expect Give a Mile to grow? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We want to chase that billion miles. And, you know, I think one of the interesting dynamics of Give a Mile is giving something away for free. You know, it's it's really hard to give something away for free. And I know, you know, the first flights in Canada, like, you know, who are you? Why are you doing this? I, I don't see much history with you. Um, and so, you know, I always said when we get a social worker or a hospice or ICU unit to do one flight, we're going to do 20. And that's where we get majority of our flights are, you know, we work closely with hospices, cancer centers, ICU. All flights are medically verified. And, you know, whether it's a social worker, spiritual care provider doctor or nurse. And so, you know, when we expanded down in the U.S. just two years ago, we were really trying to get the word out and awareness out to, to hospices and, and, you know, cancer centers, ICUs that, you know, we exist. And, and so, you know, one of the things we really want to do is, is that awareness through that community that, hey, there's a, an organization, they provide flights, this is how it works. You know, when you have a social worker or somebody go to a family that's dealing with end of life, that's a huge transfer of trust, right? They're going to this person and saying, hey, there's this organization, they might be able to provide a flight. And so we got to make sure we can back that up. So we're trying to raise supply and demand equally uh, together, right? We, I mean, the toughest thing is having to say no. And, you know, people ask me, well, what percentage do you say no? It ebbs and flows based on kind of, you know, how much demand is coming in. But, you know, I think on average, we're probably saying no 30% of the time when we should say yes. And, and we want to do a better job of that. But we also need to get to Tara's point, we need to get more airlines involved, right? That will help us collect more miles. Uh, we need, I, I would say, just financial support. If there's any organizations out there where we look at some organizations that help charities scale and grow with, you know, running their operations and investing in their operations, we could absolutely use that um, because, you know, we are volunteer driven, uh, but we're hitting our limits on that. And, and we definitely want to get some, you know, structure and full-time employees in. But if you look at the model itself, 
there is no reason that this cannot be operated in any country in the world, right? Every country has its own airlines. Every country has its own loyalty programs. Every country obviously has people that can't afford to fly to be with their loved ones who are end of life. So we can take this across the world. We can impact so many people's lives, but we need help with that scaling part. Here, uh, Kevin mentioned that Give a Mile says no 30% of the time. Why does Give a Mile say no? Is there any kind of means testing or is it pretty much if someone asks for it and it's within Give a Mile's power, they'll do it? I believe Kevin's referencing, you know, the the flight requests that fall within our mission. We do we do say no to, you know, we don't provide flights for a funeral, for example. So there are requests like that that just fall outside of the mission. We also have means testing, so um, so that um, I don't think it happens very often. But if somebody's, you know, above a certain income level, they don't qualify. But what Kevin's talking about the valid requests that we have, it's at that certain moment in time, you know, we don't have the miles or the cash on hand. That's really, that's really the tough, the toughest, you know, is when you, when you can't accommodate those flights because of supply and demand. And at that moment, we don't have the cash or the miles to make those happen. Gavin, I want to take a broader view and get back to this idea of you and Tara as individuals engaged in this charity. Mm-hmm. What do you think creating Give a Mile has taught you about yourself? <laughs> well, you know, there's so many lessons inside of this, uh, so many lessons inside this journey. You know, one of the, I think the most important things through the Give a Mile journey is, you know, connecting with the families that need flights and and talking with them. They always remind me of perspective on life, right? Like I'll reach out to a family and it'll be during the work day and, you know, I'll be all caught up in some work problem and work stress and, you know, are mad at myself or mad about something. And then I'll talk to a family that maybe is dealing with a young child uh, with terminal cancer. And then it just gives you a perspective. Like, you know, why am I caught up in that narrative? Um, look at, look at what's going on here. I also would say that it's really, those families are so inspiring from a courage point of view, just, just how they carry themselves. And, and it's really taught me to, you know, try to live a better life in the sense of, of, um, putting yourself out there, being there for people, being compassionate, um, trying to lean into people more. Uh, you see these families that they have no reason to be kind. They have no reason. They should be angry, but their love and their compassion shows up uh, through this connection with Give a Mom. And then I, I think the biggest thing for me is it truly has taught me compassion. You know, what true compassion is. There's an incredible book called um, Tattoos on the Heart. And it's about a, um, a priest that ends up working in South Central LA with a lot of kids that are involved in the gangs. And just, you know, this, this constant, you know, these kids are, are falling and they're, they're ending up, a lot of them are ending up being killed in gang violence and just the work through that. And just how he has learned the true art of compassion and opening your heart to see people who they really are, to see, see them, right? There's a, a great quote. I won't get it right, uh, exactly right, but it's basically, we no longer sit in judgment of each other but I sit and I really see you, right? And to me, that's what Give a Mile has really taught me and continues to teach me I'm on that journey. I always tell the story of, you know, when I gave the first few Give a Mile flights away, I would call the family and let them know they have a flight and they're this big, big pause of silence. And I get really anxious in it. And I'd be like, you know, we're totally legit. You can check out the website. And, and then I realized it had nothing to do with that. It was just the fact that there were no words in that moment. You know, the family would say, I want to say thank you, 
but it just seems so small in what you're doing. You know, this is the most powerful gift we can have right now is to see our loved one one more time. And there are no words. And to me, it is that sitting in community together, uh, sitting as humans together and seeing beyond just this, you know, I would say shallow judgment of each other. It's just, it, it's really taught me and continues to teach me how true compassion shows up. Here, I often tell people that working as a hospice doctor has truly brought me a sense of peace when I now think about my own death. I'm wondering about your experiences with Give a Mile. Has it changed your opinion of death and dying, or does it appear different to you today than before you started working with this charity? For me, there's like the practical side of it and the the more spiritual side of it. And in terms of the practical side of it, no, I I have my will done. I I haven't written my own obituary template and funeral plans yet, but I think that will probably happen before the age of 50 for me. So there's this com- component of, you know, wanting to make that end of life easy for everybody around me, um, you know, wanting to have any of my my physical belongings wrapped up. But um, in terms of the spiritual side of it, I think for me, that was that was really what financial independence meant to me. It was, you know, I, my husband and I were doing our best to, to cram all the things that that had meaning into our day on the margins because the, the majority of our day was spent with our full time job. So taking care of our health, taking long walks on the weekend, spending time with friends and family and volunteering all of that was happening, but we were jamming it into life. And what I saw with financial independence was this opportunity to have huge white space to do only the things that mattered the most to me and to do the things that would make the most, the most meaning in life. And it is, it's a bit morbid to say, but I, I have had since I've, I've early retired, I've had a lot of moments where I think, you know, if today was my last day. I feel like I left it all on the field. I feel like I've lived life to the fullest. I've been even even before we we quote unquote retired. I think you know I was embracing life or traveling a ton, really living life. But but now it's it's just it's a lot more pointed. There's not a lot of wasted time or time directed by other people in my day. It's all the things that I feel give meaning and purpose. So I can really understand and, and appreciate that. I think. Yes, give a mile. It it just gives you those constant reminders because you hear these stories. And if you are caught up in something trivial about the day, it does, it brings you back and helps you refocus on what's important. And it does shine a light on that for me. But I would say um, having financial independence, for me, it gives me space to, to fill my life with meaning and purpose. And I think to set me up for really being at peace when, when it is my, my time. Well, Kevin and Tara, I wanted to thank you for coming on earn and invest today. I, what I take from this conversation is that we spend the beginning of our life worrying about building to enough. And at the beginning, often it's enough career or enough money. And then unfortunately something happens to someone we love, whether it be a friend or a family member, maybe they get sick And we realize that maybe enough has more to do with generosity and giving and family and friends. That's exactly what you guys have done with Give a Mile. And thankfully, you've now also given us the opportunity to do the same. 
I want to end this episode, Kevin, by asking you, what is the best way for us to interact with Give a Mile? And if we're interested in this charity, where can we go to learn more? Yeah, absolutely. If you go to giveamile.org, that's giveamile.org, O-R-G, that's our website. You'll be able to donate there. You'll also be able to apply if you need a flight. Um, as well, you can follow us on Instagram at Give a Mile. You can follow us on Facebook. You can follow us at Twitter at Give a Mile. If you need information, just email us at info at giveamile.org and we'll get back to you. Any questions, anything you want to dig in deeper, just email us there and we'll get back to you. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. And by having myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Tara Fromm and Kevin Crow. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. All right. I keep things running just for a few minutes just to catch our conversation afterwards. Yeah. Um, thank you for doing this. I mean, this is a difficult conversation and mm-hmm. I wanted to shine a light on Give a Mile, but also have kind of a broader conversation yeah. about how we as people fit into this idea of giving and charity mm-hmm. and being generous. Is there anything we didn't talk about that you think that's important? No, I think it was a great conversation I and mean, great questions. Uh know kind of exploring that for sure um it is interesting right this concept of when you're confronted with death or when you see death how do you actually kind of absorb that or you know kind of integrate that into your life and uh, especially when there's these practical things that still have to happen rent still has to be paid food still has to be put on the table right so yeah yeah i mean i think it's it's a difficult mix and i've definitely spent a lot of my time first struggling with the idea of finances and then struggling with the idea of my hospice patients and how to integrate kind of the knowledge that mm-hmm. comes from both. It is a tricky line to walk. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think learning from the financial community as well as learning from the death and dying community, they both have really important things to say. It's, mm-hmm. it's a question of integration, right? And I yeah. think, Tara, yeah. I mean, you struggle with that too, right? I mean, this idea of how much do I work? When is enough enough? how much is spending time with my family on the other hand you tara as most people you get to a point where you're like oh i'm retiring now but then you end up throwing yourself into something that's important that in a sense becomes quote unquote like a job but the difference is that it has a different sense of meaning and purpose to you than maybe what the corporate job felt like yeah that's such a great point and i i think everybody needs meaning and purpose in their life and one thing that I, I love about this this work in particular is that it's there there's no red tape. There is no, you know, TPS reports that need to be filled out. Every minute that I spend on this charity is it's literally getting flights out the door. And I just it makes you want to work more and more on it because you know there's this direct I do this and flights go out the door. Whereas I enjoyed my corporate job, but there was a lot of time spent during the day where I don't know exactly what they always resulted in. And so that's that's really rewarding. And I would say, because this is a community that that may have time on their hands, we we need volunteers and we are efficient with using volunteers. So if it does interest people hearing this, I would I'd really encourage you to to reach out.
As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch wherever you get your podcasts.